Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the book of Matthew. When he saw the crowds, he ascended the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Flourishing are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the mourners, because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the meek, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, because they will be called the children of God. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are you. Whenever people revile and slander and speak all kind of evil things against you on account of me, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. In the same way, people slandered the prophets who came before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt ceases to be salty, with what will it be made salty again? This salt is good for nothing except being thrown away where it will be trampled by people. You are the light of the world. A city that is built upon a mountain cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand And then it gives light to everyone in the house. In this way, let your light shine in the presence of everyone, such that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. So last weekend, I... uh... Stephanie and I, we had a bunch of friends and family come into town for the weekend, and there was a moment when on Saturday night we were having kind of a party together, and I was cooking grilled cheese for everyone. We had soup and grilled cheese because it was kind of cold, and I looked out in the living room, and it was kind of quiet, and I kid you not, 15 people in my living room were all looking at their phones, not talking to each other. (laughs) And you're laughing because I know you've had that moment too, where you've been with friends or family or or whatever it may be, and everyone is just looking at their phone. And I don't even know how it comes about, but all of a sudden, everyone's just looking at their phone and no one's interacting. And it was just a brief moment. There was, it was just silence. It was eerie. Everyone's on their phone. Then they move on. Conversation starts up again. But it just struck me how addictive our phones are sometimes. And I was reading this week that a, a statistic that was actually kind of disturbing to see, but the average American spends 11 hours a day, over 11 hours a day, on their phone, their TV, their computer, on some sort of screen device consuming media. 11 hours a day. And now granted, part of that is that we live in a technology-driven society, and so we have a lot of people who work with computers, but still 11 hours a day. That is a lot of time. And I don't know if you have the same experience as me, but there are nights when I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to bed early tonight, don't have anything else to do. And then I lay down and I'm like, oh, I should see what's on, on Facebook. Oh, I wonder what's on Instagram. Oh, I need to check the game score and see if my team won tonight. 
You know what? There, there was that one episode of the, the Netflix TV show that I wanted to make sure to finish. So I'll, I'll jump on that. And before you know it, it's like midnight and you've been on your phone for the last two hours just checking, 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 updating, updating, updating. Our screens are pretty addictive. And in fact, psychologists are starting to discover that, that some of the same things that happen to our brain when we use drugs are some of the same things that happen to our brain when we use our phones. And there are similar addictive patterns there. And that wasn't the only disturbing statistic I found this week. Another statistic that I came across um, was about how we use our screens. Uh, It was interesting, a a relevant magazine said that the top three pornography sites have more traffic on a daily basis than eBay, Wikipedia, Twitter, Instagram, and Netflix. In fact, the only two websites that consistently had more traffic than the top three pornography sites were uh, Facebook and Amazon, which is probably also not the best use of our time. And beyond that, I also read this week that while the U.S. is only 5% of the world's population, we consume 80% of the world's opioids, 80% of the world's opioids. And in fact, it caused one psychologist to ask the question, why is America in so much pain that only 5% of the world's population consumes 80% of the world's painkillers? And beyond that, I read another disturbing statistic that said one in six, one in six Americans or 35 million people binge drink at least once a week. And the binge drinking episode is defined as seven or more drinks. One in six. See, these statistics, as I came across them this week, they, they just, um, they made me recognize that, that there is something deeply missing in our society. I mean, if you think about it, we are the wealthiest, most prosperous most free society, most educated society in the history of the world. And yet we have to numb ourselves with Jack Daniels and Netflix just to enjoy life. And you look at our country and our society and it does not look like we are flourishing. It looks like we are grabbing hold of anything that we can hang our hands on that'll give us some sense of fulfillment some sense of life, meaning, and purpose, or or just easing the pain that we're going through. We're in a series on the Beatitudes, which are Jesus' opening statements on his Sermon on the Mount. And in this Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes, we see that Jesus is offering a countercultural way of being in the world, a countercultural way of existing that we're calling the way of the king. And as we've been walking through the Beatitudes, what we're we're seeing is that Jesus is offering a path, a way to flourishing in this life. And it's important for us to recognize when we say flourishing, we don't mean like Jesus and all your dreams coming true. We don't mean Jesus and the truck you always desired. Flourishing doesn't mean Jesus and the spouse that you hope to get. Flourishing is about living under God's rule and reign, about submitting your life to his way of being in the world. And so the first week, we kicked off the series by looking at what it means to be poor in spirit, and that the poor in spirit are those who recognize their brokenness and their sin before God, their need for God, and that in coming before God, 
broken, that is the way to flourishing. And then last week, Larry had a great message on, on the, the struggle we have with mourning and that Jesus says the, the mourners are the ones who flourish in this life. And again, it's a countercultural message to the way that we think we're supposed to be in this world. And today, we get to go one step deeper, one more rung on the ladder of what Jesus says is the flourishing way of life. And he says in Matthew 5, 5, that flourishing are the meek because they will inherit the earth. I have struggled so much with how to preach this message this week because flourishing are the meek because they will inherit the earth. I mean, if Jesus had said something like, flourishing are the meek because while they'll never win anything in this life and things aren't gonna go that well for them, someday they'll die and get to heaven and then everything will be better, I could get behind that. But flourishing are the meek because they will inherit the earth? That there are implications that if you are a meek person, you will inherit the earth? Like there's flourishing to be had now? I'd struggle to see that. The ones who flourish in this life are, are the aggressors, are the people who are assertive, who are confident, who take life by, by the horns. Those are the people who flourish, who inherit the earth. Any uh, Michael Jordan fans in the room at all? All right, yes, Tim. Uh, we've got this picture right here. This is a picture that, that hung on my, in my room as a kid growing up in the 90s because every kid in the 90s wanted to be like Mike, exactly. And, and it's easy to see why. His airness is the greatest basketball player of all time, won six championships, undisputed greatest player to ever play the game. But what's interesting is if you hear a little bit about his personal life, the dude is a jerk. I mean, there are stories about him punching his teammates in practice, his Hall of Fame acceptance speech, it's incredible. You can go on YouTube and watch it, but every moment of the speech is him calling out someone who was a dot on his board throughout his life. There was someone he competed against and conquered. His roommate in college, his coaches, his teammates, his opponents, everyone was just someone to conquer and to assert his control over. And beyond that, in this Hall of Fame acceptance speech, his kids are there and he just looks at them and he says, I'm sorry, guys, it must suck to live in my shadow. It's hard to come after me. And in fact, after I shared this last night, a woman came up to me and she had a friend who worked at a hotel in Las Vegas that Jordan came and stayed at. And she said that all of the staff was told they're not allowed to even make eye contact with Michael Jordan, much less approach him, ask for an autograph, say hello. If they saw him in the halls, they needed to look down at the ground and walk by per his request. Not a very meek person, I wouldn't think. And yet, when you look at his life, it looks like he inherited the earth, greatest of all time. He is loved and admired and respected and revered for his greatness. The meek inherit the earth? No, the, the Michael Jordans of the world inherit the earth. Those who are ultra competitive and assertive and can take life into their hands and, and make what they want with it. The, the people who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that's who inherits the earth. You see, I, I think when Jesus says that we're supposed to be meek people or the people of God are meek people, we have a lot of trouble understanding what he means and, and even wanting that. 
Who wants to be meek? In fact, I'd like to do a little bit of an experiment if you're willing to to play along. Um, I'd like you to pull out your phone and I'd like you to find someone in your contact list and I'd like you to text them and I'd like you to say, I really value and appreciate your meekness. Right? <laughs> see how they're going to respond. And I, I, I genuinely, if you're up for it, I would love for you to text because later I'm going to ask to see if we get some of the responses. But my guess is whoever you text, none of them are going to be like, oh, thanks. That means a lot. I've always wanted to be meek. No, they're going to be like, what, what do you mean? No, one, no one's called me that, right? So I really do want to see what, what people might respond. But it's not a compliment to be a meek person. If someone calls you meek, you kind of think, man, you you think I'm weak or or mild or there's something wrong with me, right? And if you think about it, we are a society with with thousands of conferences and seminars every year. Do you think there has ever been a conference or a seminar on the 12 steps to meekness and how that'll make you more successful in the world? (laughs) No, no employer is looking for a meek employee. That's not a characteristic or an attribute that we value in our society, right? No one wants a meek person. No one wants to be a meek person. You see, when it comes to meekness and Jesus calling us to be meek, we vastly misunderstand, one, what he's talking about. And so we're gonna spend a little time trying to understand what is meekness, because it conjures up in us images of weak. And, and, and cowardly people. But two, when we do understand what Jesus is talking about meekness, I still don't think we like it very much. And yet that is what he has called us to. And so how do we become the kind of people who can follow the way of the king in meekness? So that's where we're going today. So to start, we have to understand that when we use the word meekness, we fill in that blank with cowardice, with, with someone who's, who's passive. In fact, every person I talked to this week and was like, what do you think when you hear the word meek? I, every single person said a doormat, right? Meekness is being a doormat. It's allowing people to walk all over you. It's the person who's willing to have peace no matter what the cost, that that will never assert themselves, that will never speak up, but instead cowers back and lets life pass them by. That's what we think of when we think of the word meek. But when Jesus uses the word meek, there's kind of two levels to it. And the first is one that I don't think we often talk about, but when Jesus says the word meek, what he's really talking about is not a weak person, but someone who is submitting to God's control over their life. Someone who understands that God is in control and so they don't have to be. One theologian describes meekness this way. Meekness is a submissive attitude of the soul towards God. Meekness is a submissive attitude of the soul towards God. It's trusting that God is in control and that we don't have to be. See, the opposite of of meekness is not aggression or assertiveness. The opposite of meekness is rebellion. The opposite of meekness is thinking that you know what's best for your life and that God whatever he thinks might be best is actually the wrong way to go. And you know, I think sometimes we come to the Beatitudes and we come to all of the teachings of Jesus really, but but the Beatitudes particularly, and we think, 
that's just really kind of a suggestion from a good teacher. I mean, Jesus is a great teacher and he's got good things to offer us and this is a great suggestion to be meek, but we fail to realize that this is a teaching not from just a good teacher, but from God. Jesus is God. And when he says that we are to be meek people, our creator is telling us the way of existing in the world that leads to flourishing. It's not a mere suggestion. If you think about who knows how to use Apple products the best, it's the people who create Apple products. God has created us. He knows the best way for us to live and exist in this world. And when he comes to us and says, Meek, it's not a mere suggestion. He's saying, if you want the flourishing life, then follow me in the way of meekness. But we rebel and think that we know what's best. You know, the, the party that I mentioned uh, where all our family came to town last weekend, that was to celebrate uh, the fact that my wife and I, Steffi, that we're having a baby girl uh, come June. And it's our first grandkid on either side. We are excited. Thank you. Yeah. We are so, so excited uh, to have this little girl. Um, and as uh, we were talking this week, I, I just... I got a little overwhelmed, so I'm really excited a, a little girl is, is going to be in our life. But if, if this little baby girl has just a, a smidgen of the strength and stubbornness her mama has, then I'm going to be in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> so, because I, and I know as I've been thinking about, man, how am I going to parent this daughter and how am I going to love her? I know, and if you're a parent, you know this too, that there's going to come a time in her life when in her stubbornness, she thinks she knows what's best for her life. And she's going to rebel against what my wishes and my thoughts on what's best for her are. And hopefully that doesn't happen until way far down the line. But it's going to happen. And we're going to be in disagreements about what is best for her. And ultimately, it comes down to two things. One is that I'm going to say, look, I've lived a lot longer than you. I know how the world works, so I know what's best for you. But beyond that, it's not just an authoritative rule. It's that I love her. I love her, and I want what's best for her. And that's our relationship, our dynamic with God. I mean, the God of the universe, the creator, the infinite one knows what's best for us. But more than that, he loves us. And so meekness is the recognition that he's in control. He knows what is best for us. And so we can submit to his rule and his reign and his authority and his love. Meekness is the recognition that we don't have to take life into our own hands because everything is in God's hands. And that leads us to the second level of meekness, which is one that we're probably a little bit more familiar with. And, and that's the idea that meekness is restrained re, um, strength rooted in love. The Greek word that's used for meekness is the word pros. And it's a word that's actually used for war horses. And it's this idea that it's an incredibly powerful creature controlled by its master. And so when Jesus comes to us and he says that we are meek, he is saying that you have power to use in your life. What you choose to do with that power is what makes you meek or not. The idea of meekness is that, that we all have a relationship with power. 
And we can choose to use power in whichever way we please. But the way of the king, the way of flourishing, is restraining our power, rooted in God's love for us and a trust that he knows what's best. We still don't like that very much. I mean, if you look around this room, we are some competent, confident people. When life doesn't go our way or when someone insults us, we are really good about taking matters into our own hands and taking control over our life. We are really good at using power to make sure that life turns out the way that we hope it will turn out. Taking matters into our own hands. And beyond that, it's not just that we have trouble accepting God is in control or giving him control and that we want control. Can we just be honest? It feels really good to use power. I think about when, when I was a, a kid and I played football uh, in middle school, there was a game where someone just clocked me and knocked me on the ground. And later in the game, I got that guy back real hard. And it felt so good to hit him harder than he had hit me. Right When people insult us, it feels really good to rise up in power and put people in their place. It feels good to use power. Restrained power does not feel good. We want to get people back. We want to retaliate. We want to fight back. We don't like this idea that meekness is giving God control over our lives and restraining our power that he has given us. And the struggle over how to use power is nothing new. It's actually as old as the Old Testament and probably beyond that. But what's interesting is that in this beatitude where Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, he's actually quoting Psalm 37, which is a Psalm in the Old Testament that says this. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. You see, the Old Testament people, as they're struggling for control over their land, God is telling them that the way to inherit the land is through the path of meekness. Not trying to fight back against their oppressors. And in Jesus' day, it's actually a similar dynamic. You see something very similar in that there are a lot of people in Jesus' day that are trying to control the land. Land is what equaled power in that day. And so there's a couple of different ways people interacted with power during Jesus' time. And the first is, is that of the Romans. And when you come to the, the scriptures and you see the, the Roman occupation, or if you've ever read history, you know that the Romans, they were really good at using power. And in fact, anyone who ever rose against them, they would just smash like a hammer. They were really good at putting people in their place and making sure that they maintained the power that they had worked so hard to achieve. And so time and time again, you see people rising up in rebellion against the Romans and they just crush them. Is that how we use power? When people threaten our control or our power, do we just crush them? When our kids think they know better than us, do we crush their spirits? Do we crush our employees who threaten our authority? Do we mistreat our spouses in order to maintain the power we think we have? As a community, 
as believers, are we known as people who will do anything to maintain the power that we have and to crush our enemies? And see, the, the Romans were the aggressors, and I think sometimes we use power in the same way. But there was another group of people at that time that they were called the Zealots, and they were the people in Israel who were trying to rise up and rebel against the Romans. And they were famous for, for you could almost call it like a passive-aggressive way of going about their use of power because they would have these, these curved daggers that they would sneak up and they would stab Roman soldiers and then slink off into the background. And their whole goal was that if Rome is gonna control us and be in power over us, then we are gonna make it terrible for them. We're gonna do everything we can to make sure that their experience of trying to control us with power is the worst experience of their lives. And so they rebelled against the power over them and tried to take matters into their own hands. Is that what we do? Do we passively, aggressively attack those people in our life who have power over us with a twist of the knife in the back? And then finally, there's another group, and there, there were probably more, but another one that I think is pertinent to, to our experience is the Herodians. The Herodians were the, the Jewish leaders who were given power by Rome to rule over the different provinces, but they were the sellouts. They were the ones who were willing to compromise at every turn in order to maintain the scraps of power that Rome would offer them. They were the ones who were willing to compromise their values in order to maintain some semblance of power. Do we do that? As individuals and as a community, are we willing to compromise our values as the people of God in order to maintain power in this world? You see, each of those groups, the Romans, the Zealots, the Herodians, and others, they all thought that their way of interacting with power was the key to inheriting the land. It was the key to inheriting the world. It was the way in the world that they would maintain and gain power. And Jesus steps up onto a mountainside and presents an alternate reality. He says, there is another way, the way of meekness. It is the meek who inherit the land. And Jesus didn't just speak that from a mountainside, but he lived it on a mountaintop. Because the epitome of meekness is when Jesus is going through his trial before his death. And it's interesting because you'll see moments of him restraining his power. When they come to arrest him, while Peter rises up and slashes someone and tries to attack them, Jesus tells him to put the sword away and tells him that he could call down a legion of angels to defend him. But he chooses not to and restrains his power. And then when he goes before the trial and people begin to accuse him and, and call him sinful and say that he's a blasphemer and say that he is, he's contrary to what God is, is teaching and who God is, Jesus, it would have been so easy for Jesus in that moment as people are accusing him of all this sin. I've thought about this so often. It would be so easy for him to just respond and reveal the deepest, darkest sin of his accuser. I mean, could you imagine if he's in this trial and people accuse him of sin and he just reveals the nastiest, most innermost, deepest sin that these people have? To retaliate 
and tell them that their sin, and yet he doesn't. He restrains his power. And he says, what I have said is true. He stands his ground. He's firm. He has strength. I am the son of God. And you have no authority over me other than what's been given to you. And then beyond that, he's abused. He's struck in the face. He's spat upon. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. And how easy would it have been for the Son of God to call lightning down from the heavens and destroy everyone that is attacking him? And yet he restrained his power. And when he goes to the cross and he's nailed to the tree, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The strength that it must have taken in that moment to choose forgiveness over retaliation. But I actually think beyond that, the meekest moment of Jesus' life was before the trial, when in the garden, as he's afraid and sweating blood, he is so fearful of what is to come, that he says to the Father, not my will, but your will. Not what I want, but what you want. Submitting to the Father's will. That is the image of meekness that we are called to follow. That whatever may come, whatever may happen in our life, we submit to God's will and choose to restrain our power in love. So how do you use power? How do you choose to interact with the power that God has given you? Because each of us has a different level of power, even a little bit. I'm going to stop talking for a moment. I'm going to give you a chance to, to talk to God and for him to talk to you. And I would like you to ask God that question, to interact with that, that idea of how do you use power in your life? I'm going to give you a moment to just sit and quiet and, and have a conversation with God. And then I'm going to ask you to, to read with me Psalm 37, that Psalm I quoted earlier that Jesus is quoting, because I think it gives us an idea and a picture of what it looks like to be meek in the world. And we're going to pray that together as a hope of being the people of God who learn to live in meekness. So take a moment and talk to God about how you use power. Would you please stand and read with me Psalm 37? I'll read the leader portion and then you can join in with the all. 
Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Amen. You can have a seat. In that psalm, it, it's so fascinating. The, the phrase, do not fret, is repeated three times in just 11 verses. And beyond that, some combination of, of verbs is used of, of be still, of wait, of trust, commit, take delight in the Lord. The scriptures tell us that it is those who wait upon the Lord, those who are meek, that inherit the land. When we fret, when we worry, when we think we have to take matters into our own hands, we're going away against the way of the king. And, and I, I don't want to mince my words here. It, being a meek person, as Jesus calls us to be, it is not easy. The, the way of the king is hard. And in fact, what we see in the Beatitudes over and over again is that it is a confrontation with Jesus and culture. He is saying, this is the way the world works, but it is not the way the world is supposed to work. And the way of the king, my way, coming under my rule and my reign, submitting to my will, is the way to true flourishing. Do we want that? Because you look at the world, and whatever you might want to call it, the, the family values, the, the capitalism, the survival of the fittest, the pursuit of happiness. We can see that it is not meek, but neither is it flourishing. The way of the king is hard. It's not easy, and it goes against everything our culture tells us is the key to our success. Even just look at our movies and our heroes. Most of our action heroes and, our, and our, our heroes, they all have something to do with their, their story, their arc, is something around the idea of someone wrongs them, and they have almost a near-death experience, or someone kills someone they love, or, I mean, it, not promoting this movie, but the movie John Wick, someone kills his dog, and he goes on a rampage and kills like 100 people. Or the movie Taken, right? Like Liam Neeson, we prop him up as this hero when his daughter is taken that's willing to do whatever it takes to kill as many people as he can to get his daughter back. Those are our heroes. The people who rise up, conquer and kill and destroy in order to make life the way that they want it to be. And yet, I am so thankful 
that Jesus chose meekness. He's the only hero I know of who came back from death, not seeking vengeance against those who killed and betrayed him, but forgiveness and acceptance and restoration. See, we think the great stories of our culture are those people who take matters into their own hands and and distribute vengeance and retribution against those who have wronged them. But the greatest story ever told is of a man of, of God who took all of the wrath and anger and violence and aggression that the world could throw at him and chose instead of retaliating to restrain his power, to trust his father and to love. That is the way of the king. May we have the courage to follow in his footsteps. May we, the people of Waterstone, learn to be meek. Heavenly Father, God, we know that that meekness is something we could never attain on our own. It feels too good to use our power the way that we want. It's too hard to trust you. So Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by his indwelling in us, that we would stop striving after a certain way that we think we have to be and that we would trust that your spirit and your love can transform us into the kind of people who can be meek in this world, who can inherit the earth because we choose to restrain our power rooted in the love of the Father and trust that he has everything in his hands. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.